0: Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. My guest today is Seth Goldstein. Seth is an analyst for Morningstar, who is one of the top global investment research firms. I have been a user of Morningstar in the past, and i really drawn to Seth's work on both lithium and EVs. And particularly, I was impressed by how well he called price and the way he views the cost curve. We're going to get into all that in this episode. But before we do, a couple of things. One, I got a lot of nice notes uh, about the fact that uh, my family all got COVID over the Christmas holidays and people reaching out to ask if we're fine. We are all fine and... uh, Really, a sincere thank you for asking. At the end of the podcast, I make a few comments about uh, the recent surge in China pricing, which is spilling out to other parts of Asia. And I also make mention of the recent run-up in lithium stock prices and uh, make a couple of comments about that. Uh, And hopefully, if you listen to the podcast, you got in A long time ago, because the run-up in price has been nothing short of fanciful. And with that, Seth Goldstein. You're listening to the Global Lithium Podcast. Seth Goldstein, welcome to the Global Lithium Podcast. As we normally do, I like to start off with your backstory, where you were born, grew up, educated, and how you got to where you are today
1: well joe thanks for having me um i originally come from ohio first cleveland and then columbus i went to ohio university to study journalism uh, looking at the public relations aspect of journalism from there i was working for the u.s census bureau doing pr getting ready for the decennial census operation in 2010 uh at that point I started developing a passion for equity research and company analysis. I originally started working with my uncle, read a few books by a guy named Benjamin Graham, who was Warren Buffett's mentor, and realized I kind of like doing this and want to do this for a living. So from there, I went to the University of Iowa to get my MBA with a focus on getting a job in equity research. Out of business school, I started at Berkshire Hathaway Energy doing mergers and acquisition analysis, which was a great experience, learned a lot about how to value a company, also learned a lot about project development. But ultimately, my goal was to work in equity research. And so when the opportunity with Morningstar came up in 2016, it was an ideal fit since I already had the long-term approach to my own personal investing and used Morningstar for my own personal research. Uh, So now I have been at Morningstar since 2016 doing equity research. I cover the specialty chemicals industries, which includes traditional specialty chemicals like DuPont. It also includes industries such as lithium and agriculture. So for example, I cover both Livent and the former parent, FMC. I also chair our EV committee, which is the team of analysts who are all impacted by one electric vehicle adoption forecast. I cover it from the lithium end, but we also have our battery analysts, our auto and auto supply analysts, and our utilities and oil and gas analysts so that we can work together to develop one EV forecast that we can then implement out throughout our company forecasts. And we can also share news and ideas. So for example, when uh, China changes its NEV regulations, which seems to happen on a pretty regular basis... Our auto analysts in China will be able to send an update to the team instead of each of us having to dig through the release and try to figure out what's going on.
0: All right. So I I usually don't ask too many questions about the backstory, but since it is NFL playoff time and (laughs) you are from Ohio, are you a Browns fan?
1: Yes, I am. Yes, I am.
0: All right. Well, if you if you ever look at my Twitter feed, you you'll know I am both a Bills and a Browns fan. So it's a, it was a tough it was a tough uh, Sunday uh, uh, for me.
1: But a good uh, Saturday.
0: Yeah, it was a good Saturday, and hopefully this Sunday is a good one too. But it's going to be a little more difficult. And I apologize to the global audience who are not uh, American football fans, but you're just going to have to hit the plus thirty second button. <laughs> If, if that's an issue for you. All right. Also, Ohio University. I, I have a sister that went to Ohio University. So I, I was also surprised to see that pop up because we don't often hear of Ohio University. We usually hear of the Ohio State University. <laughs> so, um, all right, let's talk about your life as an analyst. And first thing I'd like to do is just ask about your process. Specifically, one question is the tools that you use, are they the same? For instance, if you're looking at EVs versus looking at lithium, if they're not the same, how do they differ? If you could just take me through how somebody in your role looks at EVs and lithium.
1: Sure. So before I talk about uh, my specific process for EVs and lithium, I'll start with Morningstar's equity research process. We tend to look long-term and we forecast years, not quarters. So I forecast a 10-year DCF model for all three of my lithium companies, Albemarle, Liven, and SQM. And our long-term approach means that we may be very different from the rest of the market and from consensus when the near-term outlook is different from our long-term view. Uh, We also look at competitive advantage to help us forecast which are the highest quality companies within an industry. So when I look at my specific process, uh, regardless of topic, whether it's EVs or lithium, I start by gathering as much information as I can, Uh, you know, reading, learning, attending webinars, essentially just trying to find as much content out there to give me a sense of what are the major drivers of an industry then I tried to develop a framework around those major drivers that ultimately drives my forecast. So if we apply this to EVs, the goal is to forecast electric vehicle adoption globally. What this means is reading a lot of government documents like the 1200 page EPA fuel standards report from 2012. This means reading a lot of reports from companies in the batteries, EVs, and charging industries, and really trying to get a sense of Where are we at today and what are the factors that are going to drive EV adoption higher, lower, stay the same uh, in the future? And for lithium, this is a very similar process. The goal is to forecast lithium prices and help investors understand the differences among lithium producers. So here I've developed a supply and demand framework where I go project by project to forecast prices and then separately, I developed a producer framework to help investors differentiate um, among producers that doesn't just look at things like what are your capex costs and your cash costs, but also looks at quality elements to where there could be extra risk associated with a given producer that other producers may not face.
0: How are you f- deciding on what competitive advantages, If you were going to take any of the, the companies you've mentioned, you can pick whatever one you, you want to drill down into. But if you take a step back and say, okay, I this is what the 10K says. This is what their investor presentation says. But I hear this, on the other hand, from customers or whatever. How do you define whether anyone actually has a moat? And if they have a moat, how good that moat is, how deep and wide that moat is? Just let me know how you come to think about competitive advantage the way you do? So
1: an a economic moat is a sustainable competitive advantage that a firm may have in order to generate excess returns on capital. So think of a return on invested capital greater than your weighted average cost of capital for at least 10 years, if not at least 20 years. When I look at the lithium producers, first the first thing I want to do is try to compare costs On an apples to apples basis as closely as possible. So I use an all-in-sustaining cost framework where I take cash costs, I add royalties and export taxes, I look at things like overhead costs to run the business, and I look at sustaining capex. For a lot of lithium producers out there, they're not yet in operation. So I have to make some general assumptions that I apply across the board evenly uh, to each project. But that helps me develop a cost curve that's based on this apples to apples all-in sustaining cost process. From there, I look at the lowest cost producers on the cost curve, and Albemarle is one that, whether you look at carbonate or hydroxide, based on their, you know, having the some of the best resources in the world, uh, they tend to have the lowest cost.
0: Okay, I'm glad you went down this path. When you start talking about cost position and then add royalties into it obviously in the last few years in Chile we've had a significant change How would you say both Aemarle and SQM's position in the market is a is a low-cost producer changed after the the deals with Corfo Certainly that cost
1: advantage um, has eroded somewhat compared to like a live event in Argentina however the Corfo royalties sliding scale? I think it's important to look at when lithium prices are at a cyclical bottom, what does the cost structure look like? Will Albemarle and SQM remain profitable throughout the bottom of a cycle since the the royalty structure, you know, with the progressive tax system still allows them to make a healthy profit when prices are hitting the top of the cycle. From there we can see that the royalty rates drop pretty far when prices are hitting the bottom and you know the, the cost advantage actually widens a little bit when, when prices fall. From there, that gives me confidence that they will be able to out-earn their cost of capital sustainably through, through a cycle, and they do have a cost advantage in place.
0: When you compare, I'll give a specific example. Before the Corfo deals, clearly the Atacama was the low-cost carbonate resource. Yes. If if you take a world and take your let's say your future price projection from 2021 on, plug in that resulting royalty onto Chile's cost and then compare Livent's carbonate cost, you actually get a, a sea change in Livent for many many years was significantly disadvantaged from a cost perspective to the Atacama. And that really is at reasonable long-term carbonate pricing, that's no longer the case. How would that play into how you evaluate one company's position versus the other?
1: Well, I, I think the important thing to remember is when I'm looking at the lowest cost producers, it's not its not a one producer wins and everyone else loses situation. It's who are firmly throughout a cycle, the lowest quartile producers. In this case, Albemarle, SQM, and Livent, in my view, will continue to be three of the lowest cost lithium producers globally throughout the cycle. Now, to your point, in any given, if you plug in a different price, you know, one, two, three can change. And it also depends on looking at hydroxide versus carbonate, because that, that's a different cost curve entirely, where Albemarle could potentially go from number three in carbonate if prices are really high and that royalty starts to creep in to n- number one in hydroxide when you're starting from the green bushes. So it's it's certainly not a cut and dry exercise, but I'm looking in general, do they have enough of a cost advantage over those high cost, non-integrated marginal cost players that tend to inform prices so that they can earn an
0: excess return over the cycle? Let's take a step back since we got to the product breakout in lithium, but let's let's go back to EVs for a second. Sure. I read a document that you put out a, f- a fairly long time ago, but I think it's it's holding up pretty well. You basically made a, a call, I believe it was October 2019, or you believe that in 2030, 20% of new car sales would be EVs. Do you still believe that? Or are you more aggressive, less aggressive? And then let's parse out how that would shake out from a model point of view or a... Uh, cathode perspective, which then brings us back to what lithium's needed. Sure. That is still my forecast. 20% electric
1: vehicles, which I define as pure battery electrics, and then 30% of vehicles I'm forecasting will be hybrids. This includes your plug-in hybrids and your traditional hybrids like a Prius. I am forecasting EVs to be cost competitive with ICEs by 2025, which in my view will be the catalyst for more mass market EV adoption. You know, in my view, I think the EV adoption right now we we have sort of two consumers. First, you have this early market adopter who thinks EVs are cool or wants to be environmentally friendly, or, you know, just think a car like Tesla is a really cool car and wants to drive one. But I still think there's cost and functional barriers to adoption for a more mass market. Uh, EV perspective. So while many early market consumers may have bought or planned to buy an EV today, I think we still need to have further improvements to cost and function in order for EVs to really take off and, and gain that mass market appeal.
0: Well, clearly we see China's always been The EV demand has been a function of what the government's been doing from an incentive standpoint. Now we're starting to see with the the whole EU policies very important there in terms of legislation against ICEs, etc. How do you see this from both what's offered on the market and then from the consumer perspective? I mean, how, how do you see the type of car? whether it's a small car, a midsize, a bigger luxury car. When you have a 20% composition of sales, how do you parse that out into coming up with your average battery size and kilowatt hours? And then we can roll that back to cathode. So I take the average battery size today and I
1: slightly increase it since I think in order to meet the, the minimum range of at least 300 miles you're going to need for mass market adoption, batteries will generally have to be bigger. However, I do think energy density will be somewhat of an offset where new battery chemistries that, that can give an EV more charge while holding the battery size constant, that, that will be a partial offset to needing to just double or triple a battery size. However, I still do think largely... EVs are likely to be not the giant SUVs, maybe your sedans, your coupes, your smaller SUVs. I think that is going to be the, the most likely area of adoption. And we're, we're going to see hybrids for things like uh, bigger trucks that certainly here in the U.S., a lot of consumers prefer to drive.
0: You've got a number, you've put a flag in the ground for 2030. What's your 2025 number when, when parity arrives? For penetration. I, I'm
1: at somewhere around eight to ten percent. Certainly, it's I see more of a an accelerated push from twenty twenty five to twenty thirty as cost continues to go down and we reach a total cost parity basis. So here I'm looking at purchase price plus fuel and maintenance expenses. I still think EVs are likely to be slightly more expensive. Uh, then ICEs on a purchase price, but you'll make it up through electricity being cheaper than gasoline and much lower maintenance costs.
0: Total cost of ownership. Total cost of ownership. Yep. If then you look at the barriers to getting there, what do you you see right now is the, the top three barriers to people deciding to buy an EV? And do you believe that that's a global phenomenon or, or, or people's, is people's reticence to buy an EV different in different regions or don't you look at it that from that perspective?
1: I've developed a regional framework for EV adoption. Um, in addition to cost, I see three functional barriers that I term together as road trip anxiety, but those three functional barriers are range on a single charge, battery recharge time, and the availability of charging infrastructure. I call these road trip anxiety because I don't think these are as much of a concern if you're just driving around town, you're going to work once we return to work um, or going to the grocery store things like that. But I think consumers may hesitate thinking they may not be able to take a road trip with an EV yet. I see range and battery charging time improving globally in all EVs since EV makers have tended to be global automakers. Any technology they sell in one region that spurs adoption. There, they're likely to sell in all regions globally. So I think we're going to see range improve to at least 300 miles on a single charge. I think battery charging times will continue to fall to where you get to under 10 minutes for an 80% charge. You know, and if you're looking at a 300-mile range, that gets you 240 miles in less than 10 minutes. I think that will be acceptable for consumers since that's not that much longer than filling up a gas tank. I see a regional wildcard as the availability of charging infrastructure, and I see that either helping or hurting EV adoption uh, in a given region. Regions that build more chargers will likely see a higher EV adoption as consumers won't fear that they can't take a road trip without worrying about where can I charge and, and that being a concern. Uh, to buying an EV?
0: Well, we've seen, because of COVID, I haven't been in China in a year, but uh, it seemed like every time I went to Shanghai or even Western China, I saw more and more charging. I believe that's a similar scenario in Europe. And I believe that in the next couple of years, that'll, that'll continue to to improve because largely legislation uh, EU support, et cetera. We're having this conversation on inauguration day. What do you think with a new administration coming in and, and a lot of their rhetoric being around supporting green initiatives, do you see a, a Biden presidency as being significantly positive for putting infrastructure in the U S or do you think it's a, uh, more talk than uh,
1: reality. So, so that's a great point. In, in my view, building charging infrastructure is the most important thing that governments can do over the long term to spur EV adoption. You know, things like subsidies are great in the short term, but ultimately, once EVs reach cost parity, uh, subsidies will no longer be needed to spur adoption. With the Biden administration, I think having the ability to have the Senate pass infrastructure funding bills, you could potentially see EV charging being tacked onto a bill like that, which could then uh, help the U.S. in long-term EV adoption. Since in my view, China's building the charging infrastructure, Europe's building a charging infrastructure to support mass market EV adoption. The U.S. has sort of so far taken a more patchwork state-by-state approach where Places like the coasts in New York and California are building a lot of charging infrastructure, but in the middle parts of the country, we see infrastructure being a little more sparse. And as a result, I think we would likely see different levels of EV adoption state by state. Should the Biden administration be able to put a package out there that to get funding for chargers to be built, and by chargers, I mean the high-speed fast chargers. I think that could go a long way towards helping EV adoption in the U.S. in the second half of this decade.
0: Let me ask you, we've tossed the term EV around a little bit so far, but when you look at e-mobility, you're talking about BEVs, battery electric vehicles. In your analysis, how much of that is scooters, bikes, buses, things that are, are, are not uh, classic family vehicle. how um, well I mean if you' if you're in Southeast Asia the classic family vehicle may may not be what it <laughs> you consider it in the United States, but sure, I think you get my point is on your demand model for lithium and rolling it back to e-transportation, can you roughly give me the components of what's autos? what's small vehicles, what's transit, buses, et cetera? So
1: autos are going to be the majority of lithium demand in in my lithium demand model. And that's just because the number of autos sold globally times the amount of lithium per battery, if I assume a 50 kilowatt hour battery is the global average for autos, that is just going to get you the largest total addressable market for lithium. Now, buses are going to be an important uh, lithium demand driver, so will commercial delivery vehicles, and so will motorcycles. However, due to that number of vehicles sold each year times average battery size, total addressable market component, they're going to have a smaller impact to demand. So I think autos will be the majority of lithium demand globally. However, what I would say is that other batteries... By 2030, I think other batteries, which includes all their transportation, which includes energy storage and includes consumer electronics, I think that total lithium demand from that other battery uh, category is going to exceed all of 2019 and 2020 demand by 30 to
0: 40%. Let me ask the question you probably anticipate, and that's uh, when we talk about the EV market there's been, in the last, especially in the last two years, a lot of discussion about high nickel cathode and about the need to transition. The lithium market would move towards being hydroxide based. What is your thesis on this issue? And has it changed at all in the last six months, given the change in design on LFP packs, which ultimately resulted in Tesla having some models that use lithium carbonate, not lithium hydroxide.
1: In my view, I still think that hydroxide will continue to grow fast and will take a large share of the auto market. However, I, I do see carbonate still growing and still being the majority of lithium sales uh, by 2030. while hydroxide will have its place uh, for things like a, a fixed route vehicle such as a bus or a commercial delivery vehicle or a motorcycle a an LFP battery that might be a little less expensive uh, might be a better option for those those producers for those automakers you know in my view, I don't think that the end users here meaning automakers or utilities for energy storage, I don't think they really care what type of battery chemistry there is. They just want the the battery that's the cheapest, that's going to meet their functional specs. So for autos that may need the longer range and prioritize that over, you know, some of the other aspects like costs and are willing to pay a little more, you're going to see those high nickel uh, hydroxide based batteries. But for other delivery vehicles and other battery uses that, may not care as much and where cost may be a more importantly weighted factor, I think you could still see carbonate um, having a dominant market share.
0: So let me make sure I heard you correctly. You, you don't see a crossover point between now and 2030 where hydroxide is more than half of the, of the market. Did, did I get that? Did I hear that right? You heard that right. Okay. I, well, we agree. I mean, and, and not that many people agree with me on that. So, uh, okay. Okay. That was a that's a that's a bonus as far as I'm concerned. You've called the 2020s a transformational decade for lithium. When you look at this decade, and you can make a couple of pit stops on the way to 2030, but 2025 or 2027, how do you see the supply and demand dynamics? Obviously, we've been in a period of slight oversupply in some areas and pretty significant oversupply uh, particularly at spodumene concentrate but if you look at demand well i don't want to give you the numbers you tell me what your numbers are but where do you see demand in 2025 and how do you see how do you see supply and demand balance and then how does that drive what you model as pricing
1: so ultimately over then over this decade i'm forecasting lithium demand to grow six times Uh, from where we started. So roughly from around 300,000 tons in 2019 to about 1.9 million tons. So a little over six times uh, by 2030. To meet that demand, higher cost resources will need to come online, which means I think we're going to see the floor for lithium prices continue to increase as the demand keeps growing and new resources come online. So right now we're we're starting to come out of the bottom of the last cycle. I would expect to see volatility this decade where we're going to have periods of boom and bust. Um and and this is this is a typical this is typical with resource extraction industries where Demand tends to grow steadily over time, but supply comes on in waves and is very lumpy. So you have these periods of massive undersupply followed by periods of massive oversupply as, as supply and demand never really seem to be in balance for more than a short period of time. When I forecast, I forecast mid-cycle. So I'm forecasting what, what will prices look like in this mid-cycle a steady state environment. And I'm forecasting $12,000 a ton for carbonate, uh, around 14,000 a ton for hydroxide. I I will note here that this is for the high quality battery-based carbonate and hydroxide. As batteries move to 90% of lithium demand from around 60% today, I I see the sort of industrial technical grade becoming much less important to determining where prices are, whereas today, I think some people tend to start with that low quality, you know, lithium and price the batteries based off of that. But I I see, you know, batteries sort of becoming the dominant, uh, really, really most important factor by a much larger magnitude in 2030.
0: Let me throw out a theory and you tell me whether you buy into it or if you look look at it slightly differently. You put a put a percentage of 60% on where we are now in terms of battery demand, which I agree with, I think my number might have been 61 for for last year. If we look at the big four lithium producers, we can see that probably all four struggle to make A majority, a strong majority of battery quality product. As we get into a situation where we're moving towards 90% of the industry being battery, how do you think that that plays out? Do you think it's better technology at the original producer level? Do you think it's, we just, there's a lot more investment in upgrading capability, which we've already seen happen in China? There's a fairly significant amount of, reprocessing of lithium values. So, I mean, that's, that's one challenge that the industry has. And I guess my, my question is to somebody doing what you're doing, first of all, do you actually even see that as a problem? And secondly, how do you see that as being addressed by the industry?
1: I think given the demand for high quality lithium, um, will, we will see both. We will see producers, taking the time to install upgraded equipment, potentially even when they're building new projects or building new uh, lithium processing plants, you may see costs rise to include that equipment already so they, so they don't have to go back in a few years and do a massive overhaul or install new equipment later. Um, At the same time, I think there still will likely be a market for upgrading lower quality lithium into the the high quality uh, lithium chemicals to put into batteries as some producers, especially new producers, may not have the money to fully install uh, the highest processing equipment in their operations and may just have to sell a lower quality product uh, until they can fund upgrades at a later point in time. So I, I think there will be a, a demand for both. It's my sense that of the major producers, we're likely to see them over time especially as prices recover and their profits recover and free cash flow recovers i think they will be able to have the additional capital required to put in those extra upgraded processes so that they can make a higher proportion of the high
0: quality lithium chemical you talked a little bit about you know the common resource uh, trend of getting ahead and then being behind demand and thank you very much for not using the word commodity, which would have led into another discussion. Let's take a look at that for a minute. Even if you look at something like an iron ore or other big commodities, boom and bust, the booms aren't 300% growth in four or five years. They they flex much less than that, which still causes disruption. Now you're looking at, and I, I think we pretty much agree on this, that Lithium's probably going to triple in the next four years or five years, and we've seen even the big producers are, have had trouble with expansions. Certainly, the juniors have had trouble getting even getting financing to try to build new capacity. Do you really believe in the next six years you're going to have a big oversupply? Because the last time it happened was the end of fifteen. Through 17, but we only had 1% EV per- penetration when that happened that time. And, and if you go back and really do the forensics on it, that was largely started by a policy of two producers rather than a, a legit shortage. It's really when Tanchi and Abelmarl stopped selling uh, Greenbush's material to the converters in China and it, it caused a, quite a stir. And then we saw the response in Western Australia brought on a lot of capacity. But I think it's a long question. It's more of a statement than a question, sorry. But we've seen that WA can bring on spodumene relatively quickly. But if we look at the, just the numbers, take everything that's in WA that can even be expanded and then try to put that in the context of a million tons of LCE needed. And I can't see oversupply happening once we go into shortage again. I, I mean, I can, it'll happen ultimately, but I don't see it happen in the next three to five years why am I wrong?
1: I I tend to agree with you. I am forecasting uh, prices to reach 12,000 a ton, which is my long-term forecast in 2022. And I expect that to be the new floor for prices. I guess we could see a situation where if prices rise and all of the spodumen that was already built uh, comes back online very quickly. And for some reason, the, the miners would want to expand with all their brownfield capacity expansions and run full out, you might be able to see a situation where potentially Chinese conversion capacity, the independent converters come online and stay online and don't produce based on traditional economics, are happy to lose money to try to potentially gain market share or follow a volume over price strategy. That could happen, but To me, this seems very unlikely. I think what's more likely is that we would see prices stay high and that would incentivize new supply, but it would be more in sync with the growing demand when it comes online and less so causing a, a bust to the level that we saw during this last uh, cycle that we're just starting to come out of right now.
0: That's really my thesis is that the movie that you saw in 2016, 2017, 2018 with various new producers in WA coming on is not going to happen again in in, this, in a similar way. And I, and I think largely they've learned some lessons. And what you didn't see was... To, to a large extent, matching conversion capacity. And if if we're only talking about a four-year cycle to tripling the market, it would be really difficult for all those shoes to drop to create a an oversupply in in my mind. Because we were having in in 16, 17, you were having growth that was more like 35, 40,000 tons a year. I mean, I'm saying the industry is going to grow at least 70,000 tons in 2021, hit six figures in 2022 and go from there. And it's really, I mean, just it's pretty simple math. If you're going to get to 100,000 to a million tons in 2025, there have to be some big years. Yeah. And and I I agree. 12,000 is a number that pretty much can support everything that needs to happen, but the time it will take to happen is yet again, another issue. So that I think what we see is rather than boom and bust, I think we see mini boom and big boom. (laughs) And there may be a few periods of time when the price is closer to 20,000. I don't see that as being out of the realm of possibility because we saw a lot of twenty-five and $26,000 a ton material sold in sixteen uh, for sure. I know because I sold a lot of it. And we've, what we've seen happen in price just in the last several weeks in China starts to feel a little bit like Q4 at 2015. I don't know what your thoughts on that are, but I want to go to another old saw about the lithium industry. And that's that the lithium industry is very opaque. You're an analyst. You've never been an industry insider, never worked for a lithium company. Although you you got a little bit close when you were working for Berkshire Energy, because they were they were trying to noodle around in Southern California back in those days. But so how do you view the lithium industry as an analyst in terms of if you compare it with other industries you look at? Is it opaque? And if so, why? Yeah, you
1: know, lithium is opaque, but at the end of the day. Uh, that is how specialty chemicals companies and industries tend to work. I mean, most specialty chemicals companies, whether it's lithium or whether it's other traditional specialty chemicals companies like a DuPont or an Eastman, you know, they'll they'll tend to talk when they report results about price and volumes and product mix shifts and these type of things, but you never get any detailed numbers. You know, in my mind, this is the same as a lot of lithium companies. Now you do have companies like SQM and Oracle Cobra who do report price and volume. So you can actually put some tangible numbers down to that. But, you know, I think there's somewhat of a desire by some people to categorize lithium in the same way as other traditional commodity resource extraction businesses where every company should report a price and a volume or revenue and volume and and that way you can calculate the price and you know kind of compare that but i i think it's more complex here and here's where we we have to break down lithium into the upstream and the downstream businesses where the downstream is a chemicals business and you're very unlikely in many specialty chemicals companies to get that sort of detailed information that, that you are likely to get if you're talking about a more upstream commodity type of industry. So you know, that's a long way of saying, yes, it's opaque, but I kind of see this as normal for the course in the specialty chemicals industry.
0: Let me ask you something. I mean, you look at SQM, you look at in you look at uh, Albemarle, and that's one thing I've always loved about SQM is it wasn't a rigorous exercise to figure out what their price is. I mean, they just kind of put it out there. However, if you look at the comparison between Albemarle and SQM price wise, if you look at 2016, SQM had a substantial premium to what Albemarle was getting. Even if you weren't actually sure of what Albemarle's price was because of the way they managed it, you could get close enough. And then you have it, you, now you've got a situation where Avalmoral's price is significantly higher than SQM's. My theory on that, well, it's actually not a theory, It's I can pretty much support it with fact, is that SQMs had, in the expansion process, had more quality issues than they had in the past. And they've had to go to China and they've had to sell at the lowest common denominator. And if you're even taking a cursory look at Cobre they're kind of the poster child for, they entered the market in a boom time, could sell for over 10,000 a ton, even a very low quality product, you know, what they had to create a name for primary grade. And then when the industry was in balance and then teetered towards oversupply or a cobras price dropped like a, like a rock down below 4,000. Yes. There's that kind of data out there. But when you look at Abomaral, because they have the organics and the downstream business, they have a much more complicated business. It's very hard to divine price. How much do you trust what they say about price in terms of how do you model that if they say in an earnings call well price price went up four percent what context can you put that in because they have so many different products And even their markets are much different because they they have a fairly high mix in China because of their operations there. When you're looking at forensics on the financials of an Albemarle versus an SQM, how much extra work is an Albemarle?
1: What I try to look at is if they say price is up, uh, if they say, you know, what is volume done and how does that compare to what the revenue was? can kind of give me a clue if... Is, is price, are they saying price is up, but maybe it was more of a mix shift where they sold a higher quality product and price isn't actually because price and mix and mix tend to get lumped together a lot of times. I also look at profit margins too. You know, in theory, if prices are truly rising and nothing else, everything else is staying the same, profit margins should be rising too, since that should all flow to the bottom line. You know so those those are kind of the factors I look at to to see since with Albemarle we don't have a a firm price that we can put in every quarter to to calculate uh what they're doing now with Albemarle, I think they have a much as you've talked about before on the podcast, they have a much different contract structure on how they're selling, and it seems like they're even going to change this again further. Uh, with customers where sqm likes to sell more of a short-term you know I, I guess you could call it quote unquote spot market basis or at least a short-term basis while Albemarle has tried to sign up customers for multi-year contracts now based on my most recent understanding of their of their new price structure they're going to go for three different tiers of length of contracts we'll see how it works out but it, it seems that that might be a that, – that's certainly a factor to consider as well is what's the length of a contract since that's going to uh, determine certainly
0: part of your price movements from quarter to quarter. I think if you go back and look at some of the things that Avomarro said about the floors they had and then look at the results, the, the floors had a lot of holes in them or or at the very least, extremely unstable. As we go forward, though, when you look at a price and you say, okay, we're going to be in a tight market for possibly a fairly significant time, do you see that as driving a a less varied price? Like we saw in 2016, when even low-quality material sold at a premium, in many cases, because of Apple contracting, price. I, I can give you specific instances where Cobra sold to the same customer if up to 5,000 a ton more, which didn't make any sense. But do you see in a, re- in a sustained shortage that there tends to be a more narrow band of pricing, irrespective of contracts? How do you, as an analyst, look at we're going into this situation where the market may be tight. Avonwara obviously didn't get the same kind of Pricing that SQM did the last time we went through this. Well, I mean, I guess in my mind, I'm asking the question do you think they'll make the same mistake again? It seems to me
1: that the switch to a three-tier strategy where you have a portion of customers locked in who want the fixed pricing, portion of customers where there's a band of pricing that moves based on market, and then a portion of customers that are more like an SQM, a very short-term basis. I think. That strategy change was designed to, to fix the okay. flaws of the previous price strategy. If you're going to hold prices fixed um, and then you miss out on the upside when you're in an undersupplied lithium market, uh, your, your, your price floors and your contract prices should hold when prices fall below so that you, you don't get burned on the downside as well. But instead, Albemarle made concessions to their customers. And so they kind of lost out on the upside. They lowered prices on the downside, albeit to a, to a smaller price decline than SQM or Liban or Cobre, but still they did have a price decline. So I think Albemarle realized that this wasn't the optimal pricing strategy. And now they've moved on to this three-tier system where they're hoping that um, they can capture more upside in the future. When we get into the the undersupplied, rising price environment,
0: let me just ask you for some perspective on looking at the EV market. And and you see Tesla did for practical all practical intents and purposes five hundred thousand uh, units of sales in in twenty twenty. It was shade under that. Where do you see them? Say in twenty twenty five, do you see? a VW who I think sold 213,000 pure BEVs last year and 422 with all electric powertrains. Do you see a, a VW having higher sales than Tesla in a, in a five-year time frame? simply because now they're throwing more effort at it? Or do you see Tesla's advantages is sustained longer than that?
1: Well, Tesla has certainly built a brand equity uh, that I think resonates with many consumers by by being the first mover. However, I think once other car companies can make up some of these functional disparities between them and Tesla, things like range and recharge time, I think then you get into more of the classic, you know, what's your favorite car? Things like. Brand things like functional, you know, features inside the car. I think those become, you know, just like buying an ICE today. Uh, which which brand do you want to buy? But while Tesla still has this advantage of having the quickest recharge time, having the farthest driving range, um, you know, then when a VW today isn't as functionally comparable, I think Tesla has the clear advantage. But if they can, you know, close the gap um to where i think once an ev can drive 350 to 400 miles it really doesn't matter if you produce a 450 or a 375 mile range yeah. it consumers really don't care once once charging falls below 10 minutes if it's 6 or 7 who cares you know i think at that point like when you when you buy an ice do you even look at the size of a gas tank it's you know these type of things don't matter to the purchase decision. So I think once all EVs get over that sort of functional barrier hump to where they are all meet the minimum consumer standards, uh, then I think it's it's less important. And from there, uh, whoever
0: has the best marketing and the best branding uh, will will win. We've been talking for about an hour, so I'll start to wind this down. But let me just ask you from a perspective of Somebody looks at this closely, but but is not an insider. Where do you see the lithium industry, say, in, in 2025 or 2026, in terms of, will it still be dominated by four people? Do you think there'll be two or three more majors? What's your speculation on, really, the industry structure, mid-decade lithium?
1: Well, for only looking five years out, um, I would expect the major six companies to still be uh, some of the largest companies. I think by that time, Lithium Americas would have surpassed um, a number of the, the players since they seem to be well on the way to bringing on the first resource, the Kuchari Ola Rose, which would immediately give them uh, more production if they can reach the 40,000 tons in the phase one that would give them, you know, more production than Cobra. They'd be rivaling Livent at that point, assuming Livent hasn't expanded the capacity yet. And, you know, if Thacker Pass continues to develop, then that would put them in a pretty big position to get to at least number five, if not past Tianchi for number four. So I think they could quickly be climbing the ranks. Um, You know, we'll, I would expect to see a couple other players come online, but I wouldn't expect to see anyone bring on 50,000 or more tons that's not already an existing player.
0: Well, since, since we mentioned lack, uh, yesterday they announced they were, were going out to the market and they've done it now twice in a, in a relatively short period of time and, and really been able to bolster their balance sheet by doing it. This has really been the issue with especially smaller lithium companies not being able to get financed and not being able to advance projects. They take a Neolithium. I mean, they even even when CATL came in, they came in at a very de minimis amount of of investment. In order for the industry to really change from uh, four big players and then a couple of smallish fully integrated producers, how do you see the financing shaking out. Do you see in a big energy company coming in, or a, you know, major industrial company coming in, or don't you put much gray matter at looking at that problem?
1: I don't. I don't spend too much time looking at that. However, I think it is possible that we could see uh, some some energy companies would be good candidates to diversify away from the traditional fossil fuel based portfolios into. Um, more of a growth area uh like lithium um certainly, if prices recover, I think at least at twelve thousand, then financing options become better available for these uh junior projects to get financed. but i ultimately I think that that's going to be the biggest driver is where lithium prices go since that that would give uh lenders more comfort. That the project will work, uh, the company won't go bankrupt, and be able to put some more capital uh, to bring in some of these projects online.
0: Let me ask one one final question before rapid fire, and that's: when you're looking at the lithium industry, how much of your dialogue is actually with the with the lithium companies, and how forthcoming do you consider them? I tend to talk to Albemarle, Livent,
1: and SQM management IR teams on a regular basis. Um, I can tell you that they are pretty forthcoming in answering the questions. Now, they they won't always give me exact numbers and details as much as I would prefer, but uh, again, that's kind of the nature of specialty chemicals, so I don't put too much stock into and me not getting specific like what okay. was the price last quarter. I, you know, I think... They tend to be very straightforward with, here's what our capacity expansion plans are. Here's where we're investing our dollars. Here's the status of those projects and that type of thing. And they've never had them say, I won't answer your question. They just don't always give me as many numbers as I want.
0: All right. I thought that was the last question, but you, your, your answer raised another question. We've seen both Abelmarl and SQM and live in announce expansions, announce specific years, and then not meet those goals. When you look at, evaluate them, I mean, these guys are the future of the industry, and if they're having a hard time bringing on capacity, what does that mean? I mean, how, how do you think about that, or how do you think about some of the, let's just call them what it is, excuses for non-performance? Well. I, w- I would say, in
1: resource extraction, bringing on new capacity, whether it's lithium or any other industry, there's likely to be hiccups along the way, even from experienced producers. You know, I cover a potash producer who was building a new mine that came online three years late and a billion euros over budget. So, <laughs> sounds like a lithium project. <laughs> this this is the resource extraction industry every project, every geology is unique. And regardless of how much development work is done, I just think it's very difficult. There's always some new snag once you're getting into the ground or once you're processing the the product and trying to figure out, especially with a product like lithium, where you have to meet such high quality specifications in order to be qualified to sell it to a battery producer. When you put these factors together, I think it's, it's, part of the game it's it's unfortunately a part of the industry and that's why i tend to put a bigger lag on new projects uh ramping up their capacity and coming online um then you know perhaps just by going based on what management says their original timeline is
0: i appreciate that answer i think that's totally reasonable i mean that but that is in fact, one of the, the more significant issues now when, especially with Albemarle saying, oh, we're sitting on all this resource that we can bring on when we need it. And I would say there's, there's really significant doubt that they can bring it on when they need it. I, I absolutely believe that they have a lot of headroom in terms of expansion the real question becomes timing. And, and I, think it's, I think it's fair for an analyst or it's fair for somebody like me who's commenting on it to say, hey, look, if past is prologue, we're in big trouble here. But anyway, thank you for your time. And as we normally do, I'm going to ask you a few rapid fire questions. In looking at your resume, I see that, and actually I think you mentioned it in your uh, backstory that you had worked for the U.S., Census Bureau, which I consider to be probably an interesting yet possibly difficult job. Give me one of your more interesting experiences from your time counting heads for the United States government. Well, I can say
1: I was leading crews of uh, enumerators, who were the, you know, the census workers that go door to door when the form's not filled out in time. I had an enumerator come to me nearly crying, cause someone yelled at them and threatened them and chased them off the porch. So, <laughs> you know, I I sent it up the chain and said I think we maybe shouldn't do this, but I was told by my boss just give it one more try. So, I went, knocked on the door, got yelled at as well. Told I'm not give, telling you anything. Get off my property. You you learn that. When you work for the Census Bureau, you work for the government, and how people feel about the government,
0: you tend to hear about. is how they feel about you. Okay, if you could be a world-class performer in any professional sport, what sport would that be, and what position would you play?
1: I, I always loved to play basketball. Unfortunately, I was never that good at it, so... You know, if I could be world-class, I would love to be Steph Curry and just shoot
0: threes all night and be the best shooter in the league. Okay, good answer. If you could spend a day with any historical figure that's ever lived, who would it be and why? Any historical figure. Could be Jesus, could be Adolf Hitler. It's your call. (laughs) Well, given that uh, Martin Luther King Day
1: was this week i you know he's uh, been on my mind i've been reading some of his books lately and i think i would love to spend a day with martin luther king and get his perspective on uh, where we're at today and how we can you know
0: keep moving towards equality all right great answer seth goldstein thank you for being my guest today on the podcast thanks joe i appreciate it it's always a pleasure to speak with well-informed people that are diligent and do their homework and framing their thoughts. I plan to have Seth back again in the future if he's game. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the hour we spent talking about lithium and EVs and cathodes. And now on to a brief uh, update on what's been happening. I have been posting on a more or less weekly basis on Twitter of what S&P Platt's uh, Global says about the spot pricing in China, but I can also tell you that I've been out in the market active myself, and in just the last week, uh, the price of hydroxide, I got another container uh, yesterday. Uh, in Southeast Asia, and that price is up a dollar over what it was the week before. And the lead time is another four weeks longer. So we're really talking about 10 to 12 week lead times now. And uh, even though hydroxide isn't moving up in China as fast as carbonate is, we are seeing the market turn faster than I thought. I want to take a minute to congratulate my good friends at Lithium Americas. They announced that their recent capital raise was successful in raising $400 million, which is going to be a huge help in moving Thacker Pass forward. So congrats to John Evans and Alec Meikle and the team at Lithium Americas. Most of the people that listen to this podcast have at least a modest investment in lithium, if not more than that in in the last several weeks, the lithium stocks have really kind of gone crazy it's been uh It's been fun to watch but I'd have to say that if I was gonna pick the frothiest stock out there. I'm not going to mention names, but I would say that the project is in my home state of North Carolina, not too far from where I am sitting recording this. And I just find that market cap as of today, uh, the kind of the street of dreams. And I'm not given investing advice, but I would certainly consider taking profits if I was a holder of uh, that uh, particular stock. And on that note... Let me just add that uh, if you are new to the podcast and you want to see more of my work, you can go out on Twitter at at Global Lithium, or you can find me on LinkedIn or at the Global Lithium website, which is globallithium.net. Thanks again for listening.